Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds, and also welcome to the first on-site Cookie Learn of this season. I hope you took advantage of the wonderful breakfast and the educational material that went with it. Before we start our medical grand rounds, we um, have a contest from the Cookie Learn when they're here on site, and they're here on site once a month and then providing the breakfast the other times. This week's topic was healthy eating for kids. The morning meal was a breakfast taco, so you could see a way of healthy eating with the kids. Last week's topic, however, was vegetables, and so our contest had to do with vegetables. The trivia question was, describe a strategy that you use to eat more vegetables. The winning entry pulled from a large variety of entries was Barbara Maloney saying, add them to baked goods. So Barbara, would you please come up? And you are getting a wonderful set of fresh tomatoes. <laughs> the menu for breakfast tacos, and most importantly, eating well vegetable cookbook. So there you go. And thank you to. I want to thank. Yeah, there for. I want to thank Karen Hike and. Uh, uh, so many people who make this Cookie Learn happen. I also want you to know that we've been invited as part of a 26-member consortium of institutions, not all hospitals, in fact, probably the minority, where education about healthy eating is taking place in the, the employment area. Google is a sponsor. Google is one of the members. We're going to New York with uh, to be at the Google Center uh, the end of this month with the other 25 centers. There are a few other medical institutions, but we're sharing the idea of how you educate people about healthy eating um, while you're at the health, at the workplace. Okay, well, thank you. thank you. I'm asked to tell you that the mobile sign-in for today's credit, the activity code is 67-small-b-small-k. 67-b-k. And you text that in. And now, without further ado, I'm delighted to um, have uh, John Batsis tell us a bit about Dr. Mendelssohn, who's our guest today, who has no conflicts of interest. As you know, John is an associate professor of medicine uh, and of the Dartmouth Institute. He's a geriatrician internist and a man about town. Come tell us a little bit about Dr. Mendelssohn. Thanks, Rich. Well, it's really my uh, honor and privilege to introduce to you uh, Dr. Daniel Mendelssohn, uh, who is a, a good friend and colleague. He it, comes to us from the University of Rochester, where he is the William and Sheila Koner Professor of Geriatrics Palliative uh, Care and Person-Centered Care. Um, he uh, has been in upstate New York for a number of years, having completed his uh, undergrad at uh, Rochester Institute of Technology and a Master's of Science and MD degree from the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. He then completed his uh, primary care uh, medicine uh, fel uh, 
residency and then geriatrics uh, fellowship, a two-year academic geriatrics fellowship at the University of Rochester. Uh, he is a staff physician geriatrician in both palliative care and geriatrics at Highland Hospital Strong Memorial and Monroe Hospitals as well and has been really instrumental in the field of geriatrics in developing and evolving the uh, concept of co-management in older adults uh, undergoing hip fracture repair. Um, he is a, a really true leader in academic geriatrics and is, is currently the co-principal investigator of a geriatrics co-management um, dissemination program grant sponsored by the Hartford Foundation and has had funding from the Reynolds and NIH as well in the past. Uh, he's a true friend, a colleague, and uh, a small anecdote that I'd like to share is uh, I, I do remember when I was a geriatrics fellow over 10 years ago meeting him at uh, one of our AGS poster sessions where he was really encouraging uh, as a, a, a junior uh, trainee to kind of engage in academic geriatrics. And to that, I want to thank you, Daniel, and uh, welcome to the Upper Valley Thanks. and to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and we look forward to hearing uh, your talk today. Thanks. Uh, thank you for that very uh, warm welcome and the gracious uh, opportunity to be here. Um, you know, geriatrics is fun. I, uh, I really love my job. I love what I do, and I love the opportunity to, to talk about it. So uh, thank you for your attention today. Um, as a uh, clinician, I am very uh, person-centered. I look at uh, what is the needs of the individual and, and try to match up with that. As an educator, I try to be the same. So I hope I've done that today and kind of matched up my presentation with what your needs are and what you're interested in. I hope we'll have uh, plenty of time uh, for some discussion, too. I'll be around a good part of the day, too. Um, and have some time after if uh, anybody has questions after. Uh, so uh, no conflicts. Um, we're going to get through uh, describing co-management today, which is the key concept. If you get nothing else out of this talk, really understanding what is co-management and why it's important and why it's a um, value added for geriatrics, um, that would be really important. Um, I also like to uh, help clinicians and uh, physicians kind of step out of their comfort zone. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, craft, mass, and lean production. These are business models that have helped guide how we've designed the Geriatric Fracture Center and how we've gotten to where we are. And uh, obviously, I'm going to make a really strong argument for why geriatrics uh, matters. Um, so I love to start with this quote. Um, it's uh, from Albert Einstein, and insanity is defined as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Um, you know, the way I look at that is if you don't make a change, you're not going to get a different answer. So if you want to see something change, you've got to do something different. I love that Apple uh, slogan, uh, slogan, think different. Um, a way I put this is you really can't expect better for yourself when you're a frail older adult than what you do for frail older adults today. Look at the person in the bed or the person in your office or the person in, uh, walking down the street and think someday that is going to probably be me. Unlike pediatrics, which we've all survived, we are all hopefully going to be in the geriatric population someday. And this is my really call to action for you. Look at how you want to be treated and how you want to be managed and then do that for, the, for your folks today. So um, US healthcare is expensive. Um, we all know that. This graph shows the adjusted, uh, adjusted for the um, uh, difference in cost of living. Um, as you can see, for 2008, the US just blows everybody else away. 
Um, that's also uh, pretty much true if you go per capita, um, by per capita unadjusted income, and also if you go um, by percent GDP. We just blow everybody else away in terms of cost. Um, it continues to rise no matter how you look at it. Um, and unfortunately, cost is not necessarily associated with quality. In fact, Dartmouth being uh, one of the places, well, the home of the Dartmouth fat list, you guys know this probably better than anybody. Um, so I kind of uh, use this graph. So if you, you look here, you got New Hampshire, both high value and low cost, probably you know, close to the best proportion in the US. New York, we're not so great. We have a lot of room to, to grow. Now, New York, as it turns out, is actually multiple small communities. And I think if you actually looked at Rochester, we'd probably be up in this range, and New York City would be down in this range. But uh, that's just a bias. <laughs> I don't have data. Um, again, cost is not equal to quality. If you look at uh, the US falls in the middle as far as longevity, um, in spite of the fact that our cost is so high. So um, we want to get to the triple aim, right? Um, population health. We want to make our community a healthier place. We want to try to improve the patient experience. Uh, there's good data that sometimes happy patients are not well cared for patients, but that's another story for another time. And we want to try to get the per capita cost down. So try to work on both cost, quality, and experience all at the same time. And with that in mind, value equals quality divided by cost. Um, if we're pro providing high quality care, it may cost money, but if we're getting more bang for our buck, then we still have value. And that's really the principle that we found the um, part of the principle that we found at the Geriatric Fracture Center on. So um, how do we get to hip fractures? Well, it turns out hip fractures are pretty common and pretty expensive. So it's an easy target, and they're really easy to identify, right? Even a geriatrician can look at a hip x-ray and know that it's broken. Um, so it's about, in 2011, it was about a $4.9 billion hit to the US economy and um, about 320,000 hospital discharges. Uh, we're looking at about 350 now, and uh, worldwide this number is going to continue to rise. As we get more successful at moving the age curve, we're going to have more fractures. Um, and uh, we talk about in geriatrics the silver tsunami. We have, uh, I think, what's the number? 10,000 baby boomers are crossing 65 every day right now. 10,000. Um, and we look at our fracture risk as really starting around 75 to 80. Um, so these are the five principles of the Geriatric Fracture Center that we built the program around, and uh, I'm going to go through each one of them with you. The first is most patients benefit from surgical stabilization of their, of their fracture. Almost every patient gets better from stabilization. Very few patients do well just by letting them heal. Um, and that's been possible because of, of modern implants and modern surgical technique. The reason you stabilize a fracture, it immediately improves pain. We shoot for a functional outcome. What we talk to our surgeons about is get me the repair that allows this person to be weight-bearing as soon as possible. Old people not moving is bad, right? Every day in bed is at least three days to recover. Bad things happen to patients who sit. Also, getting good fixation is hemostasis. Um, you know, our patients think of bones as like concrete, but they're not. They're obviously a, a living organ, 
And when they break, they bleed. And we've had massive bleeds around fractures that require an awful lot of management. Um, you know, a fracture is a trauma, there is blood loss, and getting fixation quickly helps uh, prevent that. <laughs> So um, when we think about how are we going to fix a fracture, we want to have the right surgical technique, so that's on our surgeon's side. We've got to have the right implants, that's on our manufacturers and our surgeon's side. The surgeon's got to have the experience. Operating on old bones is often like operating on light bulbs. In a lot of medical centers in the past, hip fractures were considered the R1 or the R2 ortho's job. But these are technically difficult procedures. These should be done by experienced surgeons and people who have a good respect for both the soft tissue as well as the bone and as well as the whole patient. So that's where we come to the correct system of care. You need a system of care that's got the right attitude, demeanor, and skill set to care for these individuals. Next principle of the Geriatric Fracture Center is the sooner patients have surgery, the less time they have to develop iatrogenic illness. Nothing good happens from, from hanging around. Um, delays lead to delirium, to pneumonia, to skin breakdown, malnutrition, urinary tract infections, um, thromboembolic events, and deconditioning. The last thing we want is for our frail elderly patients to be lying in bed for extended periods of time. The other thing that happens, and we see this all the time, is delays lead to other falls and other injuries. Dissatisfaction. Patients who are lying around in pain get delirious. Delirium is a major dissatisfier for both patients and families. Um, and obviously it leads to prolonged length of stay, higher costs, and excess mortality. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but delays in the pre-op period end up in longer lengths of stay on the post-op period to a, long to a large degree because of increased iatrogenic problems. No good comes from, uh, from unnecessary delays. The next uh, principle of the Geriatric Fracture Center is co-management with frequent communication avoids iatrogenesis. By the way, iatrogenesis is not a word. I made it up. Um, please start using it so that it becomes part of the vernacular and I get credit for it. The, the other reason I want you to use it is it absolutely makes my orthopedic colleague, Steve Cates, who founded the Fracture Program with me, crazy. And uh, so I like, you know, how often does a geriatrician get to like poke fun at an orthopedic surgeon? So please help me with this one. Um, so co-management is really key to what we do. Co-management is different than consultation. This is one of the things I really have a hard time sometimes getting through to folks who are used to a consultative practice. Co-management is not see the patient, leave a note, and walk away. Co-management is full patient ownership. The orthopedic surgeon is not consulting on this case. The geriatrician is not consulting on this case. We are both attending on this case. So that means we both see the patient daily. We both own the patient. Um, that means daily communication, whether it's in the chart, whether it's in email, whether it's text messages, um, whether it's running, to each, running into each other in the hallway, which is my preference, but uh, for some reason they seem to work different hours than I work. Um, but daily communication is important. When we first started the program, uh, we actually commanded that the attending geriatrician and the attending orthopedic surgeon talk to each other um, the day of surgery and the day of discharge, and hopefully in between, but at least those two times. Now that we're a mature program where there's a good rhythm to it and we have fantastic PAs that uh, help manage the program, it's not as, as necessary. But one of the big things that I talk to my folks about is um, as soon as you start to feel tensions rise, talk to somebody. Don't fight in the chart. Don't fight with each other. Talk to somebody. 
Um, who, who loses when there's a fight? Exactly. The patient loses when we have a fight. If we're getting angry, it's just like when you feel the tension rise with the patient. Step back, ask yourself what's really going on, find out what the common ground is. And the common ground for us is we want excellent patient care. I don't have any orthopedic surgeons that don't care about the patient. I don't have any geriatricians that don't care about the patients. I don't have any nurses that don't. PAs, physical therapists, occupational therapists, social workers, nutritionists, dietitians, everybody in my hospital cares about my patients. So that's the common ground. Come back to that, settle it out, and move on. Because if we're fighting and we're not figuring out a plan, the patient is going to suffer, and none of us want that. So we also believe that there's a completely equal responsibility. Uh, we make the decision together when a patient gets discharged. Um, in the beginning of the program, we did it very formally. Now that, again, that it's a mature program that's moving along, it's good enough that uh, each attending writes in the chart, patient is ready for discharge. Um, if I get called on an orthopedics problem, rather than ditch and dodge and say, call ortho, I will call the ortho resident, the ortho PA, or the ortho attending and settle it and ask them whether they want to call the nurse back and give them the answer or whether they want me to do it. But nobody gets to ditch and dodge. Everybody owns the patient. Um, critically, each, each service writes their own orders. In the normal consultative model, the consultant leaves their recommendation and walks away expecting that somebody will actually take care of it. An orthopedic surgeon doesn't ask me, how to, put in, ask me to put in an implant or to take out staples. I don't ask them to write insulin sliding scales to manage complex fluids and electrolytes um, or, or even complex pain. Um, so it's not fair for us to just leave recommendations and walk away. Also, there's excellent evidence, actually, some of John's work in the past. Um, if you don't write your own orders, good stuff does not happen. Um, in a good co-management environment, it's very collegial. I love going to work. I love working with my colleagues. It's a collaborative environment. There's mutual respect. There's shared decision making. And there's true interdisciplinary care and there's great coordination. One of the big failings in modern uh, medicine with all of the fragmentation care that we've done, and I, I am a hospitalist and I manage hospitalists and I believe in the hospitalist movement, but it creates a natural fragmentation in care. When you do that, you have to take ownership and responsibility for coordination. In a good co-management model, the coordination is there. There's good connection and communication with everybody. So we're going to talk about the difference between interdisciplinary care and multidisciplinary care. I think this is a really key concept that is part of value-added geriatrics. Interdisciplinary care is really in the DNA of geriatricians. Um, so in multidisciplinary care, which every hospital in America has, there's all the appropriate services to care for the patient, but they're not necessarily cooperative and they're not necessarily integrated. Each program could have their own goals and their own vision of what's supposed to happen. In true interdisciplinary care, all the appropriate services are there, but there's a shared vision. So the care is integrated, it's cooperative, it's collaborative. A graphical way to put that is sort of silos versus each part of the team having their piece of the puzzle and working together so that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So the last thing we want is silos. We really need to have a shared vision of what are we trying to accomplish. Um, so co-management with frequent communication avoids iatrogenesis. There's that word again. So, um, 
The next is standard protocols decrease unwarranted variability. That's one of uh, my favorite principles of the Geriatric Fracture Center. And I interpret unwarranted, oh, uh, I forgot this slide. Uh, anybody know what this is? Manta ray. This is a manta ray. I am a scuba diver. It's uh, how I recharge my brain. Nobody can page you at 100 feet below the water. <laughs> I don't look at my iPhone. I don't check emails. And it's very hard to yell at you underwater. Um, and uh, did you know manta rays don't have to worry about fragility fractures? You know why? No bones? Did I hear that? That's right. So manta rays are like sharks. They have no bones. And unlike sharks, they have no teeth, which makes them much more friendly. <laughs> and manta rays actually don't have a barb either, unlike uh, the uh, ray that killed Steve Irwin. Um, so when we dive, we talk about plan your dive and dive your plan. When you scuba dive, which could be a dangerous activity if done poorly, um, you really need to know what you're doing, plan your dive, dive your plan, and you come back and you get lovely pictures like of manta rays. So when we operate, we talk about plan your operation and operate your plan. Well, it's the same thing on the medical side. We plan what we do, and then we do what we plan. Um, and then when variation happens, you see it. And when variation happens and you see it, then you can respond to it. But if you sort of don't have a plan, how are you going to notice when something's not on plan? So have a plan. That's where standardized orders come from. Standardized orders prevent unwarranted variability, or what I like to call inappropriate creativity. Um, I like smart house staff. I like smart nurses. I like smart residents and PAs. I like smart doctors. But have a plan. Shooting from the hip is not a plan. So our standardized protocols are co-developed. They're evidence-based where there's evidence. Where there's not evidence, they're best professional opinion. It's sort of wrangled around a table, so we kind of get there. They're interdisciplinary, which means that each discipline that has skin in the game gets to have input. They're, they used to be, I don't know why I keep forgetting to update this slide. They're no longer pre-printed because, I don't know, we have epics, so we don't have to print them anymore. And the standardized order sets match up exactly with the nursing care plans. So that's great. You know, Again, why would I make things hard on nurses and make them have to interpret stuff that doesn't really need to be interpreted? The orders match up with the, with the nursing care plans. We use a standardized geriatric assessment, which uh, makes the geriatrician's job a little bit faster and easier. Where we had to compromise to get buy-in, we compromised to get buy-in. Um, and they're thoughtful. So I wouldn't say our order sets are perfect, um, but the enemy of the good is the better. Uh, get to an order set that you can agree on. Get to a protocol that you can agree on. And then if you have to change it because it's not meeting your needs and it's not meeting the outcomes that you want, then you change it. Um, so standardized protocols don't mean that they're uh, written in blood. It means that they're the best that we have right now and we can adjust as needed. So like I said, unwarranted variability equals inappropriate creativity. OK, this one is another principle I love. Discharge planning begins at admission. I stole this from uh, Kyle Allen and uh, Bob Palmer and the rest of the uh, ACE unit folks, Steve Council. Um, this is right from the Acute Care for Elders unit. Surprisingly, every patient I admit to the hospital is ultimately going to be, get discharged. <laughs> Thank God. In fact, 92% um, of our patients get discharged to some type of rehab. Only 1% to 2% of our patients die a year, which is kind of like half the national average. So uh, most of our patients get out of the hospital and need some other care. So that's why we think about it from the very beginning. So built right into our standardized geriatric assessment is a functional assessment. The other reason it's critical to have a functional assessment 
is out of respect for my surgeons. My surgeons need to know something about the goals of care for this particular person. So there's a huge difference between the 90-year-old golfer who trips getting out of the golf cart and breaks their hip and wants to be back golfing next season, or a skier who slips on a slope and wants to be skiing again, versus the individual who is 60 years old, has burnt out MS, has been living in a nursing home, and falls off a gurney and breaks their hip. They could have exactly the same fracture pattern. Both can look pretty sick sitting on a gurney, lying on a gurney in an emergency department, but the outcomes I need for those two individuals are different. In one case, it's palliative. In one case, it's functional. One person has a very bad prognosis. One person has a very good prognosis. I don't expect an orthopedic surgeon to be a master at figuring that out. And obviously, most patients are somewhere in between. So our orthopedic surgeons rely on us to tell them, where is this patient going, and help them do what we call demand matching, match the procedure and the implant to the needs of the individual. Um, very, very important to do a functional assessment. Our care coordination is the entire team. The team starts with the patient at the center. Their family is a critical part of the team. I've never seen a geriatric case where family or support network weren't important. Obviously, social work is really important. Or discharge planners for hospitals that use discharge planners instead of social workers, the therapist, nursing, etc. One thing that's really important is that the team is consistent about the plan. We operate on most of our patients in under 24 hours. Some families are actually frightened by that. You're really going to take my 92-year-old mother to the operating room in six hours? Like, doesn't she need her cardiologist and her pulmonologist and her nephrologist and her internist to all say that she's okay to? No, it's okay. Um, so the team has to be consistent. We operate quickly. We discharge quickly. We get people up and moving the next day. Why do we do this? Because this is our experience, and it's much better outcomes for the patients. So people need to be consistent about the plans. Families tend to latch on to what fits with their ideas. So if they hear a plan that's inconsistent, the part of it they like is what they're going to uh, latch on to. Um, we have a really good relationship with our rehab centers. In our community, the rehab centers don't operate quite at 100%, but pretty close. It's a competitive environment, and we're competing against five other hospitals to discharge our patients, um, including our sister hospital. Um, by having our patients well-prepared and well-packaged, they're attractive to the rehab centers. Even our patients that are very sick tend to get taken because they know that our stuff is straightforward and honest. If you know. We put right in our notes, if we think somebody's not going to be, not going to have a good rehab potential, if we think they're going to fail rehab, if we think they're going to die, it's right in our, in our summaries. We're honest and straightforward about it, and they still get picked up, because um, they know at, at least what they're seeing is, is real. Uh, they also know that they can pick up the phone and call me if they get something that they think is bad. And when we first started the program, Steve and I actually went out to uh, all the various rehab centers and did presentations. We also taught them how to treat their own fracture patients when they present in their facilities. Really, really elegant thing to do. So we taught them how to go ahead and medicate and transport the patients from their facilities. Guess what? When their patients fracture, they send them to us. <laughs> um, so. Anyway, um, okay, so those are the five uh, principles. I think we're doing all right on time. We're going to just keep on moving. 
Um, some of the common issues I put in here for completeness, because of uh, time limits, I'm not going to go all the way through it. But we did a careful job at sort of talking about who's responsible for what for our program. For your own program, again, doesn't really matter who's responsible, but somebody has to be responsible and you have to have, have agreement and buy-in. So who's going to deal with DVT prophylaxis? In our facility, it's mostly orthopedics, unless there's a medical um, anticoagulation that's necessary, then we deal with it. Um, pain management, we usually deal with. Discharge details are shared, um, things like that. Patient has fever, sort of depends who gets called, sort of depends on, on what's going on, so that's more or less shared. I don't start antibiotics on a fracture patient without talking to my orthopedic colleagues, particularly if I think it's related to something surgical as opposed to something medical. Um, okay, so uh, again, for uh, uh, to make sure we have enough time to talk, I'm, and I included it for completeness because uh, you guys are welcome to have my slide set. This is kind of our history. My friend Steve was recruited in 1995 and he noticed that there was an unserved population and uh, for whatever reason this orthopedic surgeon's heart was moved by uh, frail older people from nursing homes and uh, that's what started the program. In 98 my boss was recruited to Highland which was a uh, failing hospital at the time. It's a 261 bed community hospital that at the time only had 60 patients in beds. I don't know why he took the job. <laughs> of course, the next year when we had 70 patients in beds, he asked me to come. <laughs> and I said yes, because I was a geriatric fellow. What did I know? Uh, so they recruited me to start the Acute Care for Elders unit. And also, we founded a Strong Health Geriatrics Group, which was this large outpatient geriatric practice. And that's what caused us to found our hospitalist program to help take care of these frail geriatric patients. Um, in 2003, my friend Steve came, he was actually a good friend of Bob's, came to me and said, um, you know, have you noticed that when the two of us take care of a fracture patient, it's more like a dance than um, a fight and that things go slicker and easier. And when you have to work with another orthopedic surgeon, it's like pain and torture. And he goes, yeah, I have noticed that. And he goes, well, guess what? When I have to work with another geriatrician or hospitalist, it's pain and torture. And I said, wow, that's interesting. He goes, yeah, not only is it interesting, but why are there two standards of care at our hospital? Why is there a Daniel and Steve standard of care and then an everybody else standard of care? We should only have one standard of care. And uh, Bob immediately bought into that. And uh, we spent about six months planning and getting uh, interdisciplinary buy-in. And we opened the center in 2004 and haven't looked back. Uh, we take care of any patient with a fragility fracture over age 60, so those are low energy, uh, fall from a standing hype type of fractures, long bone and pelvic fractures for the most part. Our spinal injuries go to our sister hospital. Um, it is a true co-management model as we talked about. It's very patient-centered with protocols driven by the patient's needs and adjusted as appropriate. We use both total quality management and lean business flow methods. So um, now we're going to talk about lean. This is usually out of most physicians' uh, thought processes, but I have a feeling at Dartmouth, because of your uh, sense of, of data and quality, you probably know more about this than most. Um, the lean model involves a comprehensive analysis of all the processes involved, eliminating waste, and looking at ways to um, not just do quality, but efficiency. It revolves around teamwork, which uh, works really well for geriatricians, and good regular communication. Um, 
So let's look at the industry models. The first basic industry model was craft production. This is still done today. Tiffany's still does craft production. They make one item at a time, and it's an individual craftsman, for the most part, working on that, with some standards. And that was the only production model before 1911. Henry Ford introduced us to mass production, which we'll talk a little bit about, and then lean production, which we'll talk more about, came about 1950s after World War II with uh, Deming from the US working with uh, Toyota and Ono in rebuilding Japan. So craft production, as I said, is um, an individual craftsman. It's very specific to the professional, has a wide variability in outcomes. You got the best person, you get a nice product. You have somebody who's a little sloppy or having a bad day, not a great product. It tends to be the highest cost, it's the worst quality, but often perceived as great. A handmade Swiss watch at thousands or tens of thousands of dollars does not have nearly the accuracy of a $2 quartz timepiece from, from China or Japan. Um, so it depends how you define quality and how you define value as well. Poor supply chain in craft production, worse use of space because it's not systematic, and uh, variable customer satisfaction. The original, um, the original cars were craft productions. They were all one-offs. Then we got to mass production with Henry Ford. High volume, cost moderates because you can buy in mass. Um, it's fairly systematic. It was still an inefficient use of space, inefficient use of supply chain. They frequently had issues where they would run out of some parts and have way too many of other parts because they didn't have a systematic, um, didn't have the same level of uh, process control. Um, and still moderate, well, more than moderate quality issues. The original uh, Model Ts, 50% of them had to be reworked when they got off the line. 50% of them could not be driven off the line. So had to have individual craftsmen go back and, and fix those machines. Um, good margins, variable customer satisfaction. Lean production comes in uh, with uh, the advent of um, production in Japan after World War II. It's designed around high volume, efficient use of supply chain, so just-in-time sort of uh, ideas, getting the supplies just as you need them and always having a, a steady supply. Efficient use of space, you don't, you have everything where it needs to be and it's thought about ahead of time. Best qualities, best margins, and best customer satisfaction. So where are we with medicine? Well, so both for inpatient and outpatient medicine, we're still very much at the craft production level. If you were going to have a surgery, would you go and look for the best center, or would you say who's the best surgeon or who's the best proceduralist? For the most part, we look for the individual rather than, rather than the center. Even us as physicians tend to do that, right? I mean, for me, if I want to know how good a surgeon is, I usually talk to the scrub nurses in the OR, right? They know what's actually happening. Um, so craft production still leads to high costs, and our rework is readmissions, and certainly there's intermittent lapses in quality, and again, the results are very much physician-specific. So how do we get to lean? Well, we get to lean by cutting out processes that don't add value. Supporting um, services have to cooperate. You have to have an interdisciplinary model in order to get to lean. Um, obviously, we have to meet all the regulatory challenges. And um, you have to study the results at frequent intervals. To get to lean, you have to know what are you doing, where do you want to get there, what are the steps in between, and analyzing each of those steps and seeing what you can change. Which also sort of means you've got to measure something. If you don't measure something, you can't get to quality. Um, so we have this GFC quality improvement database that's kind of the heart of how do we uh, 
get change going. There's nothing like data to ruin somebody else's hypothesis. Um, so uh, data is what we use to motivate people to do things differently. Um, our database includes all the usual sort of stuff, demographics, baseline function, comorbid conditions, um, and all that sort of stuff. The uh, database has been really important in helping us to get uh, certification by uh, the Joint Commission and also certification by the International Geriatric Fracture Center, um, International Geriatric Fracture Society. Um, those external um, credentials and validation really help to motivate a system to move forward. It gives people an external target to have as a common interest and move forward, rather than just somebody internal saying, do a better job, make more money, shorten the length of stay, decrease readmission. It's, it's nice to have those external standards. So this is uh, sort of what our patient population looks like. Um, our mean age is older than the average uh, Medicare age. It's about 85. Um, like most fracture populations, we're uh, predominantly a female population. Only about one in five are male. Again, a little bit worse than the um, uh, Medicare averages. Um, it's a very Caucasian population. Uh, we're sort of interesting. As a hospital, we attract a lot of patients from both nursing home and assisted living. So only about 40% of our patients live on their own. About 30% uh, come from assisted living. About 30% come from nursing home. They're a sick population. The average Charleston score of the patients we see is about 3.4. Um, so if you're familiar with, uh, with uh, Charleston scores and acuity measures, uh, patients with a 3.4, they have about a, uh, almost a 50% mortality rate at a year just based on Charleston score. Now the Charleston score is getting a little old in the tooth and isn't necessarily, it hasn't been updated in a long time. So probably uh, that mortality is overestimated in today's world. And we take care of a very demented population. More than half of our patients have, have dementia. Um, the usual care on the, in the middle column is actually our uh, sister hospital. Don't tell them I'm sharing their data. They don't like to be compared to us because uh, we're smaller, faster, and uh, we have better outcomes. So, um, uh, but they're, and they're a good hospital. You know, compared to national averages, they do great. It's just that with a systematic approach, you can actually do better. Um, so how do we do better? Our time to the OR is about a day um, on average. That's pretty good. If you can get um, the bulk of your patients operated on in under 24 hours, you're, you're doing good. Um, and almost everybody's operated on within, uh, within 48 hours. Our overall complication rate is, uh, is pretty good. We run about uh, you know one in three have some type of complication. Delirium rates are phenomenal. Um, entering the hospital, fracture patients have up to about a 30-35% delirium rate. So having an in-hospital delirium rate of about 24% is uh, just phenomenal. Uh, we have very few cases that, uh, that develop overall, and very low infection rate. One of the things I'm proudest of is we are essentially in a restraint-free hospital. The only place in our hospital you ever see restraints is in the ICU, and that's only because they won't let me in the room. Um, I've, uh, I didn't realize it. I used to throw the restraints out because I thought they were disposable. It turns out we were getting charged for those. Um, we uh, belong to a consortium that buys those sorts of things, and they're supposed to get washed and reused. And I just, when I walk into a room and I see mitts on my patient, it makes me crazy because I, I imagine myself in the bed, and if you put mitts on me, I just, I would rather, I would rather be sedated and die than restrained in a hospital bed. 
Um, and so I just, I, uh, anyway, but uh, we're a straight free hospital except for the ICU. Um, length of stay is great. We run about uh, 4.6. Um, we've dipped as low as uh, 3.8. It's very hard to get much lower than, than 4. Because uh, rehab requires a three-night stay, uh, there's sort of a floor at 72 hours. That's changing with bundles and it's changing with other payment schemes, but uh, really hard to, to push past. Uh, if you can get below five, you're doing phenomenal. Um, below four is just amazing. Um, our in-hospital mortality rate's very low, under two. Nationwide is between two and four percent. Our readmission rate is very good, uh, 10%. And Medicare averages are somewhere around 20%, 22%, 18%, depending upon how you look at the numbers. Um, some of our benefits, uh, again, time to surgery is fast, no restraints. Um, this is a, just another way of looking at the other slide. Um, mortality. So I knew that we decreased in hospital mortality. I saw it. You know, there was, I didn't have any doubt about that. What I was surprised at is I didn't think we would affect one-year mortality. I thought fracture center, okay, we, you know, patient hits a bump in the road, we smooth out the bump, and they just have their normal trajectory. So I was pretty sure we affected in-hospital in 30-day. In I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think we'd have a large impact. My hypothesis was we would not have a large impact on, uh, on one-year mortality. But it turns, out, it turns out that we did. Um, so if you look at all of our patients, the one-year mortality is about uh, 21%. Um, for our nursing home patients, 30% higher. They're functionally worse off assisted living a little lower, community dwellers only 13%. So that's just fantastic, um, especially if you compare to other populations. So given that we're older, frailer, sicker than all of those other populations um, that have up to 40% mortality um, at one year, we're doing 21. That's pretty good. 30-day uh, readmission, this has really become uh, the point of the realm for some centers. Um, again, we're sort of beating those numbers up. We're, uh, the year that we looked at here was 11.9%. That's in our article that we, uh, that was from 2008 data and was published in 2010. Um, looking at other centers, they, they run higher. And again, um, if you look at the age of their patients and the uh, case mix, this is unadjusted. Their patients are younger and less sick than ours. And we're also a very quaternary care center for fractures, so we're sort of a tertiary care hospital. Um, but you know, the outlying fractures on dialysis, the outlying onc patients, all those come, come to us throughout the entire region. So our overall readmission rate is 11.9% for hip fractures. For New York State, it's 15.3. And for um, all of Medicare for our region, it's 14.5. It's higher than that nationwide. Um, how do we do uh, for cost? And, um, so cost is really very well connected to length of stay. We run about $4,000 less than the New York State average and um, of the U.S. average. So big cost savings. Our margin on a case, so our sister hospital, before they started to adopt some of our principles, they basically were either break even or they lost uh, up to about $1,000, $1,500 per case. Our margin per case is over $3,500. So 
Um, you don't really think of uh, fractures as a cash cow. You sort of think of more like joints and stuff like that. It turns out fractures done well can, can generate a lot of cash. We actually did not participate in the fracture bundle because the bundle's based on your own experience, and our experience was too good. I couldn't figure out how to cut 2 or 3% out of a program that was already lean. And when you're making $3,500 or more a case, why would you go to bundles? Um, so value equals quality divided by cost. We have lower morbidity, lower mortality. We have lower cost. We have lower lengths to stay, which means better bed utilization, which means better bed turnover, lower readmissions. Better quality, better cost, and uh, we think our patients have a better experience. Um, so it's the win-win-win. Where are we going next? Well, we want to continue to sustain our results. Uh, my friend Steve has moved on to become the chief of orthopedic surgery at uh, Virginia Commonwealth, um, one of the saddest times in my career. Um, but we're championing on without him, and he's duplicating the program down there. Um, we're also trying to uh, look at how to do this with other programs. Our colleagues at Brown have been fantastically successful at bringing co-management to other programs. Richard Besdeen and Lynn McNichol are uh, rock stars. I really can't say enough good things about them. And with the uh, assistance of Hartford Foundation and American Geriatric Society, we're actually looking at disseminating this model nationwide and also creating a mini fellowship for non-geriatricians who want to learn how to do this. There's never going to be enough geriatricians to uh, take care of all the older adults in the US. So uh, if we can teach others to um, our stuff, we're happy to do that. Um, so I think I've made all the points I intended to make. Um, you want to do something, you want to make a change, you got to do something different. Co-management is uh, at the principle of what we, of what we, is a key principle to what we do. Interdisciplinary care is at the heart of co-management. Lean processes are a way to uh, support co-management. And uh, well, I said geriatric co-management is value added, but heck, it's just fun. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Did I, uh, did I finish on time? You're doing great. Excellent. So uh, any questions from the audience? I'll start. Sure. So you had a wonderful partner champion with you, and it wasn't difficult to align your interests. Where you've seen it now begin, say, the Brown situation or other places as this disseminates, these are disparate silos in many places. Well, tell us about how the, the experiences of people coming together now Great. do this. So uh, Rich's question is, um, you know, I had a willing, ready, able partner. He actually came to me. Really unusual situation. Steve is probably the most unusual orthopedic surgeon you'll ever meet. Uh, you can tell him I said that, too. Um, so how do you do this in other places? So um, I will say uh, a couple of words of wisdom. One is um, you have to have credible champions. So whoever your surgical partner is, and whether it's in orthopedics or whether it's in trauma or whether it's in colorectal surgery, your surgical partner has to be a credible champion. The geriatrician or the hospitalist who's going to do the co-management program, they have to be credible. Steve and I got a lot of clout because we were doctor's doctors. You know, Even though uh, I was sort of the young kid on the block, Steve was a very established orthopedic surgeon. He was the go-to person for a lot of people. 
Um, he and I got a lot of done by force of will. And we made some mistakes on the way. One of the mistakes we made on the way is we didn't enlist anesthesia right off the bat. Um, when programs come to us for advice and guidance, one of the things we tell them, get anesthesia on board. They're your colleagues. They're involved in every case. And anesthesia can really uh, submarine a program. Now, we have become great friends with anesthesia. They like our cases because our we back them up really well. We never throw them under the bus. And uh, our patients are well they're really well situated when they come down they are. So that's important. The other thing I would say is um, putting on my palliative care hat. As a palliative care doctor, I have to learn to talk the language of the person I'm talking to. I have to get to their place, hear them and reflect back and work with them to construct a shared vision and move forward. So when Steve and I went out to our nursing homes and talked to them, the stories they need to hear are different than the texts on the floor need to hear, is different than the story the boardroom needs to hear, is different than the foundation needs to hear. So your credible champions have to be good communicators and have to have that skill set of understanding. Not everybody has the same interests. So how do you align interests? Data helps align interests, actually. When you look at what somebody actually cares about, presents it to them, help them get vested in that, and then move the bar in the direction they care about. And as long as you know that that's supporting the end game, you can get there. The final part I'll say reflects back to uh, recent publications um, and also the New York Times. Geriatrics is rare, valuable, and endangered. I don't go places I'm not invited. I don't spend time and energy banging my head against the wall. Hip fractures are an easy target for co-management because they're readily identifiable. Done poorly, the margins are terrible. So that motivates administrative types. Done poorly, mortality and morbidity are terrible. Um, Richard Besden got his program started in Brown because the, the chief of surgery came to him and said, we're killing grandma. How do I teach my docs not to kill people on our orthopedic service? Our numbers are terrible. He got invited in, then he can do something. I would not go where you're not invited. If they don't know what they don't know and they don't care about what they don't know, don't go there. But because we're rare and there's so much out there in terms of co-management, so go and talk with the trauma service, go and talk with the colorectal service, go and talk with GYN Oncology. Success builds success. When we started our model at Highland Hospital, our geriatric anchor was the ACE unit. Our next program was the fracture program. Our next program was palliative care. And as we've added more geriatrics programs, everything's coalesced. So we've gone from a hospital that had a single geriatric program in interest to a hospital that now probably, I'm going to argue, if not um, the most elder-friendly, as elder-friendly as any hospital in the US. My hospital is great for older adults. It's where I want to put my patients. It's where I bring my family. Um, and that's sort of how you get there. Um, having trained in that hospital, um, it's a relatively small hospital. Um, I'm not sure how big the service um, for your hip fractures is, um, but it can't be that big. And how do you uh, look at the economies of scale, both at the communication issues on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis that you spoke about, and how do you expand that um, with economies of scale to larger facilities? Sure. So um, Highland is at the sweet spot. So we're a 261-bed hospital. So we're big enough to be relevant and have resources and have volume. So you don't have volume, you can't really make quality changes. And on the other hand, we're small enough to be intimate, close, and friendly. So um, I have actually told 1,200-bed hospitals, don't do this program. It's not necessary. If you're a level one trauma center 
with 1,200 beds, doing this program is hard because you're not culturally designed for it. A 38-year-old uh, motorcycle um, victim is always going to trump a 92-year-old with a hip fracture for the OR time and for time and attention. So it is ideal for this to be at a medium-sized hospital in a, big health, in a big health system. That doesn't mean a big hospital can't do it well. One of our uh, programs is at an 1,100-bed hospital in Austria. Um, there, they have to put extra time, energy, and effort in making a really big hospital feel small. Um, and it's paying attention to those principles. It's mandating things like orthopedic surgeon will talk to geriatrician or medicine doc daily. You know, and that's how you get things started. Once you're mature and you have the culture of this is how we work, this is how business happens, it's not as necessary. In our hospital, we have residents rotating from the big hospital over. The residents don't live our culture. Our nurses do and our techs do. When the residents go to do something stupid, and occasionally they do, you know it happens, that's why they're trainees, the nurses trump them. So if a third year resident goes to write for diphenhydramine as a sleeping agent for my patient, I don't get called. Because the nurses already said, we don't do that at Highland. <laughs> What do you mean? <laughs> no, that's not it. Plus, our standardized orders trump that also. So we have stuff for agitation and sleeping in the order set. Now, do I really love having a PRN set up for agitation? You know, as a geriatrician, I'd rather get called every time somebody gets agitated. But since I can't rely on them always calling me, then I use, you know, we have half a milligram of haloperidol, Q3 hours, PRN, agitation or, or uh, nausea and vomiting. Wonderful anti-emetic probably doesn't actually do that much for agitation, but by letting them give the 0.5 milligrams of haloperidol for agitation overnight, nobody gets called. They don't give them 5 milligrams of diazepam. They don't give them 10 milligrams of haloperidol. They don't give them diphenhydramine. And when I come in in the morning, I can sort it out and help them. You know, I'm a very firm believer people are allowed to occasionally have a bad night. I occasionally don't have a great day. Not too often, but occasionally things don't go as planned and you have a bad day. If you have systems in place that account for that, it keeps it from escalating. And then you have a culture that, that keeps it. So it's harder in a big hospital, um, but we have scaled it and it is doable. Um, but if you're asking me the optimal, it's not optimal for a 100-bed hospital and it's not optimal for a 1,200-bed hospital. Good question. The relationship to the administration and how they do this, and I'm going to be you know, specific. So, I assume you're, you and your orthopedic colleague are employees of the hospital. We weren't when we started. So I, I've always been an employee, um, but my friend Steve uh, was actually a solo practice general orthopedic surgeon. Uh, keep going with your question. So, so in order to make this work and not have people work in silos, somehow all the shared savings that you produce, you would hope would be attributed in some way to the work that you do. So one is, I wonder, is that the case? Or are you just an RVU machine? That, that, so, so when it comes time to hire another geriatrician to, to create this team, which is wonderful, how, how does the, you know, it's very important the administration. I, 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 early on in this process between, you know, uh, between fee-for-service and between, um, uh, you know, population health and care, have to at some point attribute the shared savings. It's a terrible... Yeah, so, so when we first started the program, we had less than 20% of our service was hospitalist, employed physician-driven, 
and uh, we had no employed orthopedic surgeons when we first started the program. Now in 2016, we're nearly 100% hospitalists and 100% hired orthopedic surgeons. We have no private orthopedic surgeons participating anymore. Um, so that in some ways has helped, in some ways hurt. Um, when we first started the program, um, and this comes into cultures, mechanics, business planning. When we first started the program, we set up, uh, we didn't under, shared savings wasn't even on the radar screen. But we did, we were cognizant of how do you pay for this. Um, so it turns out the other reason why fracture is a good one to start with is orthopedic surgeons are reasonably well paid to do these and they don't need much other incentive financially. Where they need incentive is how do you decrease my aggravation level? I don't like being on call. I don't like getting called in the middle of the night. I don't like when patients get sick. I don't like when families are angry at me. Um, so we address all that stuff because we have a high degree of satisfaction and there's very few phone calls on our patients because the stuff they tend to get called on is medical stuff. And if I get called before they have a medical problem, I can prevent a lot of those medical problems from happening. So the win-win for the orthopedic surgeons were, they, these were add-on cases for them that padded their income they were low aggravation. It doesn't take them that long to fix a hip fracture, but they do need some care around that so that it's easy for them. So we made, we made the pathway in working with us easy for them. They didn't push back too much. Now Steve and I did have to intervene a few times. There were times where people, um, the, the worst sin was an orthopedic surgeon saying, uh, I'm gonna operate tonight, so I want you to come in from home to uh, peri-op this patient and then not operate till the next day, right? If I make my guy get out of bed to come and see somebody and then you don't do the case, it's, that's a nightmare. But other than stuff like that, you know, for the most part, the orthopedic surgeons bought in. The geriatrics core were employed and as academics, we have some support. It's not a huge amount, but it's fine. Um, the geriatrician reimbursement per case is somewhere around 350 bucks, which is, covers maybe 60-50% of what they need. The other 350 is easy to get from the hospital because, I mean, that's not even half a day in the hospital. I don't have to, like how many days length of stay do I need to actually decrease to make the business model for hiring geriatricians? It's actually really easy um, because we save, a, we, it's, like, it's sort of like palliative care. We save a lot of money. Um, so as time has gone on, we are the second, I'm sorry, the third highest contribution to margin in the hospital. That gets me a lot of power. So that's why you have to measure stuff. So the joints are number one, bariatric surgery is number two, the fracture center is number three in contribution to margin. Um, so if I can add cases because I add geriatricians, I get buy-in. Um, and, and fortunately, again, the geriatricians do support a good, good part of their income. Um, and uh, did, so, the, uh, so going back to the shared savings model, under bundles, that is gonna get more complicated on how to do it. But again, you got a pie, you have to figure out how to motivate people, how to distribute it. it I, I think that will, I think it is complicated and that will take uh, some struggles. We, haven't, we quite, haven't quite hit that yet. By the way, if you're participating in joint bundles, about 15% uh, to 20% of your fracture cases end up in the bundle because if you do a hemiarthroplasty or total hip replacement as part of a fracture, they fall into the bundle. Um, so if you're a, a bundle place, 
your fractures are actually bundle cases. And that's been a big shock and surprise to a lot of centers and bundles. And the fracture patients think bundle. Did I answer most of that? Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you, Daniel. And uh, if anyone has any other questions, uh, feel free to come up, uh, up front here. Thanks.